0: share with us today? Well, my research is based on personal first-hand experience. You see, when I was three years old, I was brought to a special ceremony in the Illuminati. And by saying that, it's obvious that I was raised in an Illuminati family. When I was three years old, I was brought, um, brought to a special ceremony in which I was dedicated to the cause of Lucifer. Now, this really isn't unusual, because if you look at other religions throughout the world, people are bringing their kids to various churches, to temples, and offering and dedicating their children to the service of their god. In the Illuminati, it is no different, except they're dedicating their children to the false god known as Lucifer. Now, after that, for the next ten years of my life, I was put into what's known as the outer court. Now, the Outer Court is best understood as the Illuminati's version of a seminary. This is where you're taught all the rites, the rituals, spell casting, um, the eight nights of human sacrifice, how to practice human sacrifice, everything. So by the time I was 13, I was brought to my um, ceremony in which I was initiated as a full um, member of the Illuminati, a first level Illuminous Witch. What they did, at the, um, towards the end of that ceremony, they brought out a lamb's um, a book that's made out of lamb's hide. It's known as the Book of the Dead in the Illuminati. And this is just another counterfeit. It's the opposite of what we find in the Holy Scriptures, because Christ has what's known as um, the Lamb's Book of Life. In the Illuminati, they have a lamb book known as the Book of the Dead. Next, they brought out a quilt feather. Then they brought out a silver knife, which in the occult world is called athame, and they took that knife, they cut my arm wide open, and I had to take that quilt feather, dip it in my own blood, and sign my new occult name in the Book of the Dead. Once that was done, I was fully initiated. Throughout the next couple of years, I was learning all the rites, rituals, spellcasting, the higher level substance and everything. So by the time I was seventeen, I became a master witch, or what's known as a third-level Illuminist. Now, during this period of time, the Illuminati had been spearheading a major project, something that they had been trying to do for years. They were trying to get their own people into the four branches of the United States Army. Um, Or I should say the four branches of government, you know, the army, the marines, the navy, and the air force. They were doing this because they were trying to get their own people in and recognized as chaplains. But the problem was, at least during that time, during the 60s, they couldn't do it. They were being denied chaplain status. Now they weren't saying That were Illuminists. No, they were simply saying that they were pagans. So, during 1975, I was um, told to join one of the four military branches, and so were hundreds of other young Illuminists at the time. We went in with a three-part plan: one, infiltrate all military bases and set up operating coven;s two recruit major members of the military, whichever branch we were in, and bring them into these covens, because at the end, three, we would have access to what they had access to. And by doing that, we would be able to eventually get every single major occult religion recognized under federal status And once they were under federal status, well, their priestesses and priests would then be legally recognized and be protected by federal law. And unfortunately, we were too good at what um, we did, because if you check the Army Chaplain's Handbook of 1978, you'll find listed for the very first time in all of history, the major occult religions such as Satanism, witchcraft zone, so and so forth, and that they now have federal status, they have recognized priests and priestesses, they have tax exemptions, they are allowed to openly practice on all these military bases. And even to this very day, I'm still hearing um, reports all across this country about the trouble and the problems that have come about because of these things. And as I said, unfortunately, especially as a born-again Christian now, I am just so sorry about what we did, but that's what I was doing back then. Anyways, um, while I was stationed at Fort Lewis, Washington, an interesting event had happened. I was walking down the road, going to the PX. I had a couple things I needed to pick up. And another person in the medical field happened to have bumped into me. We just started talking. He was an acquaintance. No one I really knew, as I was saying, just, a, just an acquaintance. But at the end of that conversation, he asked me something that would forever change my life. And it started a chain of, uh, a chain of events that would last for three years. He asked me, would I like to go to church with him on Sunday? He obviously didn't know I was an Illuminati witch at the time, and um, let's just say um, I told him no, (laughs) we'll leave it at that. Anyways, starting from that day on, for the next three years, some born-again Christian was waiting in the rafters, um, just waiting to witness to me. I am not kidding. Um, I, I'd gone from um, Fort Lewis, Washington to other bases, all the way to Germany, and then back. And for three years, Christians somehow would just appear to me, you know, be focusing on me and just constantly witnessing to me. Now, of course, now, when I think back then, God obviously had his hand in all of this, in that. It would take three years to get um, all this occult stuff out of me and subdued to where I could finally hear what God was trying to tell me. It was on April 15th 1979 that everything finally came together. I finally understood what the Christians were saying in light of what God had been revealing to me over those last three years. So on that date, I walked into a Christian church, and I admit it, I was a sold-out slave of Satan. But God be praised, on that day, I left as a born-again child of the King. And so for the last 30 years, I have been doing the best I can to explain to everyone what is going on in the Order of the Illuminati, what their plans for the New World Order is all about and how it affects us, and how all these things are lining up with biblical prophecy. Now, what we need to do is just to um, take a look at just the materials I brought today. We're going to be going over these things step by step so you can see how all these things fit in and align with the Word of God. So without any further ado, let's begin this presentation. Let's go back into the history of the Illuminati to see how all these things came about. Now, all these events, really, we need to take all the way back to Amschel Moses Bauer, who would eventually change the family's last name to that of Rothschild. Now, um, Amschel himself was a moneylender. That was his profession. And um, one of the things about... Amsha was that he was Jewish. He was of Jewish heritage. And what's even more interesting is that on the outside of his shop, he had a very unusual shield. The shield itself was a red shield, and in the center of it there was another shield. But these things we'll get into later as we go along. We'll, we will get back to this shield and its importance in history. Now, in 1743, Amshel Bauer had a son named Maya Amschel Bauer. He was born, as I just stated, in 1743. And five years later, on February 6, 1748, another person had been born, and that person was known as Adam Weishaupt. Now, these two events, which at first seemed to be inconsequential, would actually have an effect that would literally be felt throughout the entire world, and would change human history as we know it. It wouldn't be until 1754 that things that would normally, you would normally think was just going to continue on a normal course, had changed because um, Maya Amshel, um, Bower's father, had died. And up to that point, the boy was actually being prepared to become a Jewish rabbi. He was already beginning to start his earlier trainings as far as entering seminary, learning the Torah, and everything else. But as I said, his father died, so His destination, if you would, had changed. He would now take over the father's business. Now, bringing it up about 15, 16 more years, in 1770, a major event had happened. At that point, Adam Weishaupt, who had become a Jesuit priest now, was also given the chair of the professorship of Jewish canon law at the University of Ingolstadt in Bavaria, Germany. Now, why this is so significant, and which will allow you a much further glance into who this man really was, was the fact that when Dr. Adam Weishaupt was given the chair of the professorship, he was only 21 years old. Only 21. Nowadays, let's face it, um, most university students (laughs) (laughs) they haven't even graduated at 21. Most of them are somewhere around 22, 23, 24. And yet, at 21, Dr. Adam Weishaupt was given the chair of the professorship. That's how much of a genius, and I do mean genius by every um, meaning of the word, he truly was. Three years later, this is where things would really begin to take a turn. See, it was in 1773 that Pope Clement XIV had heard numerous reports and rumors and complaints about the order of the Jesuits. Europe at that time was under rulership by kings, queens, emperors, empresses, and so on. The problem was, according to all the reports, that pope clement XIV was getting the jesuit priests first of all were too powerful another complaint was that they were interesting in um, i should say interfering in the political affairs of these rulers they were just simple priests supposedly so why were they interfering in the political affairs of these monarchies it's not as if um, they were the king or queen of the country what was their interest in all this? And then the next thing, the, one of the big complaints was that they had too much wealth. Now, I may not be Catholic, but from what I understand, I thought Catholic priests were supposed to, you know, not be involved in money or have, you know, that type of worldly interests. However, another one of the major complaints to the Pope was that these Jesuits had way too much money. Finally, in 1773, as I just stated, Pope Clement XIV disbanded the order of the Jesuits. They were no longer Jesuit priests, which means they could start answering to anyone and everybody. You see, before, when they were Jesuits, they only answered to the um, Pope himself. They didn't have Um, an archbishop, a bishop, or a monsignor, or anyone else, not even a monarchist, to answer to. No, they um, had only answered to the pope at that time. Now they were responsible for all their individual actions. And this is where it gets interesting, because in 1773, Meyer Amscher Rothschild, who at that time um, changed his um, name from Bauer to Rothschild, had approached Dr. Adam Weishaupt. And to paraphrase it, now, Weishaupt, remember, was just a frock. He was no longer a Jesuit priest, and he had a major axe to grind against the Pope and against all the monarchies of Europe for what had happened to him. He took it personally. He was no longer a Jesuit. He still had his doctorate, he was still the, um, held the chair of the professorship, but he was no longer a Jesuit priest. Maya Amschel Rothschild, along with 12 of his most financially influential friends, and Weishaupt was invited over to dinner at the Rothschild's mansion. And to sum it all up, basically, um, Rothschild said to Weishaupt, We know you have the organizational skill and occult brilliance to put it all together. We've got the money. You um, put it together, we'll back it. It took three years, but on May 1st, 1776, the Order of the Illuminati had become a reality for the first time in all of history. Now, you see, the idea of Illuminism, or a certain group of enlightened people, ruling and guiding the world, is a very age-old idea. It goes all the way back to Babylon and everything. But it had never actually been um, actualized. No one had actually made it a reality. And so, for the first time in all of human history, it had become a definitive reality under the auspices of Dr. Adam Weishaupt. Now, An interesting event, another historical event was going on at the same time because it would only be a couple months later, when, on July 4th, 1776, the signing of the Declaration of Independence had come about. This meant that um, America was free from the subjugation of the British Crown. And so it was in September of 1776 that Benjamin Franklin, John Adams, and Thomas Jefferson would come together and design, obviously, um, um, the Declaration of Independence. They'd finish it. And now, under the orders of Congress, they were to design the two great seals of the United States of America. Now, next year later, in 1717, 1777, another interesting event, not at the beginning, it doesn't sound like it, but something that would fit into the entire jigsaw puzzle. Dr. Adam Weishaupt had become an entered apprentice in the organization known as the Masons. You've you've heard of them as Freemasons, the Masons, so on and so forth. And he did this because he was going to start an infiltration process. But this would take a little while to um, do, but nevertheless he had um, infiltrated the Masons, but we'll get into that again in a bit. So, by the time um, these events had unfurled, over in Germany, again, Karl Theodor, who was the Elector of Bavaria, and he was the Elector of Bavaria because he was also the Duke of Bavaria. Now, his grace, Karl Theodor, um, the Elector of Bavaria, held that um, position because he was the highest ranking Um, representative of the um, noble class of that day and age. He answered to the crown, and because of his position, he was the law, and the people answered to him. And charges about a new organization known as the Illuminati were being brought up. Now, how these events um, became known to him, no one certain, because Weishaupt had been very careful not to allow anyone to know what was really going on in the organization of the Illuminati. But nevertheless, Carl Theodore was beginning to hear rumors about this, and he called um, four people who had joined the Order of the Illuminati and um, demanded that they testify, testify bef- um, before him about what was going on in it. Basically, those four people said, oh, it's just a good old boy society, we're just interested in, you know, literature, things like that, nothing's going on. Well, His Grace had no solid evidence to hold them or to convict them by, so he had to let them go. Nevertheless, um, His Grace, Count Theodore, kept a watchful eye on these people. Now, during this time, Weishaupt, as I said before, had been organizing and perfecting the Order of the Illuminati. And he devised, if if we go back to the old records, 13 levels in the Order of the Illuminati. Before you could reach the top, which would make you a Rex or an Evapagite, you would have to go through 13 levels. Nowadays, it's been brought down to six sem- simply for the sake of it's um, simpler on the organization and the way they do it nowadays, it really does make a lot more sense as compared to the old way. And this was specifically designed by Adam Weissert? Yes. As a matter of fact, this was his own creation. This is how he decided the organization of the Illuminati would be tiered. And This was originally how it was um, back in 1776. Now along the way, Breishaupt, who may have been an occult genius and great at organizing all these things, he did not have the, let's say, recruiting ability that someone else who would soon join the ranks of the Illuminati would. Now that would be Baron Adam um, Baron Adep von Knig. Once Koenig was ordered, I should say, was um, initiated into the Order of the Illuminati, the Illuminati really began to flourish. Because in a number of years, Knig had managed to recruit 2,000 of the wealthiest, the most politically influential members Of nobility throughout the entire nation of Bavaria and most of Germany. Now, when you think about this, two thousand people. Now, now it doesn't sound like much to begin with, but when you look at it this way, what if I was to take the two thousand most politically influential, the most financially rich people in America and brought them all together? Could you imagine the amount? of power and force I'd be wielding at that point? And that's exactly what Baron Knigg had done. The Illuminati was guaranteed to flourish at that point, no matter what the law was going to do to try to stop them. Interesting enough, as you recall, Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, and Benjamin Franklin were given the Um, the chore of designing the two great seals of the United States of America. Now, at his home in Monticello, Thomas Jefferson had been going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth over trying to figure out a proper design for the two great seals of the United States of America. But he just could not come up with anything solid. I mean, he was just frustrated, um, from one day to another, because it was six years later, in 1782, and he still had nothing to give to Congress as far as two great seals. So, one night, by, um, Thomas Jefferson was taking a stroll in his gardens in Monticello, and out of nowhere, a hooded figure, wearing a black robe, appeared to him. Now, this figure said nothing to him. Simply passed a red velvet satchel bag to him. Thomas Jefferson just opened that bag up and pulled out what would be used as the two great seals of the United States of America. When he looked to see where the being was and asked him for an explanation, the being had vanished. It was no longer there. He put them back in a satchel. Eventually they were presented to John Adams and to Benjamin Franklin. They loved what they saw. They presented it to Congress and Congress would eventually approve them in 1789. And we'll get into the two great seals later because there's a lot more to them than just simply meeting um, what the eye would tell you. There's a lot more to it. Now, during this time of history, the Illuminati was beginning to slowly move into America. By the time of Jefferson, approximately 14, um, if you would, um, temples of the Illuminati had been been set up in um, America. Now, among those people who had joined, The Order of the Illuminati in America, we have um, Governor um, DeWitt Clinton, we also had um, Horace Greeley, who um, joined, and other prominent figures of that day and age. And they were all joining um, the American branches of the Illuminati. You know, the Illuminati, as I said, had moved into America because Thomas Jefferson himself was not only a deist; he was also a practicing Illuminist. Just like Benjamin Franklin, he was a member of the Valsicrucians. He was also, it's believed to have been a mason, and he was also an Illuminist. John Adams himself did, um, become a member of the Order of the Illuminati, except, um, Adams had found out what the organization was really all about, so he left only to fight against them. Anyway, so we have these organizations, these branches of the Illuminati just beginning to spread throughout America. This is how the Illuminati first began to infiltrate America. It was brought in to these Patriots, if you would, who, um, some of which would become um, future presidents. Now in the early part of 1785 there was a courier whose name, as far as I recall, was Lance. He had Um, been given orders through the Illuminati that was going to help finally take over the United States of America and other parts of Europe. Now interesting enough, along his way when he was delivering the satchels that he was carrying, it was a rainy night and on the way he was struck by a bolt of lightning and killed instantly. The local police had found the body and the satchels and went through it to identify who this man was. Well, they were in for a big surprise when they found out that the Order of the Illuminati had their plans in the satchel that would cause the overthrow of America and most of Europe. Well, once the evidence was given over to, um, His Grace, Karl Theodore of Bavaria, he immediately, forever, banned the Order of the Illuminati and the Masons from Germany for the rest of history. They were never supposed to be allowed on German soil again. And those who were involved, a lot of them um, were imprisoned, or um, they were told to leave the country. Now, all these events, again, as I said, came into play because of this information that had been brought along. And there was other people involved in revealing the truth of what had happened. One would be um, Professor John Robeson. Now, he was um, involved at the Royal Society of Edinburgh in um, England. He wrote what nowadays is considered one of the best, earliest books on the Order of the Illuminati. The book is known as Proofs of a Conspiracy. And at the same time, another Jesuit priest, coincidentally, it was a Jesuit priest um, known as Abbey Baruel, had written a book himself on what, it, what was going on during his day and age and the Order of the Illuminati. His book was called Memoirs Illustrating the History of Jacobinism. This is one of the best research, best documented and very intellectually written book I have seen, you know, in the last couple of centuries. This man, Abbey Barul, really knew how to write, and how to present his arguments. Now, at the same time, years later, Weishaupt himself, obviously like anyone else, um, passed the, um, if you would, the headship of the Order of the Illuminati to another person who would have a great, profound um, mark in history. That man is known as Giuseppe Mazzini. Now, Mazzini, historically speaking, was known as an Italian revolutionary. He was causing trouble because he was crying you know, for the freedom of his people, were being oppressed, were being starved, and all this stuff. Which wasn't true. Parts of it was true, but most of it really wasn't. He basically came down to be a troublemaker, as far as I'm concerned. Now, interesting enough, this man, Mazzini, was considered to be such a heroes of the people that they even erected a statue in his honor, you know, which I think is um, ridiculous because Weishaupt had passed the head of the order of the Illuminati over to Mazzini. And Mazzini himself um, would do what no one else in history had ever done before. He would unite um, the people of Italy, the, mo- the powerful families, into an organization that nowadays we refer to as the Mafia. Now, the Mafia, it's interesting enough, the name Mafia comes from an anagram. M-A-F-I-A, which makes up Mafia, comes out to be Manzini authorizes thefts, fires, and poisonings or murders. From the Italian, this is the exact translation. This is how the um, order of the Mafia came about. You see, um, Mazzini himself was a member of the Carbonari family, the most powerful um, family in Italy at the time. And he pulled together some of the most powerful families in all of Italy, brought them together, and formed a sub organization within the order of the Illuminati, which you nowadays call the Mafia. This is why, to this very day, the Mafia takes orders from the Illuminati. And I don't care what anyone else says on this topic. The fact is, Mazzini created them, Mazzini made sure that they were put into the Illuminati as a sub organization, and they've been a sub organization in the Illuminati to this very day. And of course, Mazzini um, didn't stop there. Mazzini himself had made contact with another person who would, historically speaking, some people would um, say was one of the greatest people in history, and that would be um, General Albert Pike, who became um, the head of the southern jurisdiction of all masonry in the United States. Now, Pike and Mazzini Became very intimate friends. Eventually, Pike um, would reorganize all of masonry. He would also reorganize all their um, practices, their oaths, the levels, everything. And at the same time, he and Mazzini would come up with three world wars. They actually came up with a plan for three world wars so that eventually at the end of that third world war Dr. Adam Weishaupt's dream of creating what he called the Novus Ordo Seclorum or the New World Order would become a reality. It was because of um, Pike and Mazzini that we are now literally on the brink of seeing Biblical prophecy, the final parts of it, being fulfilled. The history of the Order of the Illuminati is a long one, and is a very detailed one. What I could do for you now is just to give you a brief explanation of those events that basically would let you know what had happened way back when. What we're going to do next, we're going to get into part two of this DVD, and we're going to take a look at the religion of the Illuminati. But in order to do that, once again, we're going to have to go way back into history. We're going to have to go back 6,000 years and examine what was going on in Babylon, and then bring it up to today to see how all these things fit together. When we talk about the religion of the order of the Illuminati we have to go all the way back to the days of Babylon shortly after the flood of Noah. Now after the great inundation the ark landed in the area known as the mountains of Ararat. And from there all the animals and everything else came out and started repopulating be populating the earth. Now what's interesting is most people believe that according to the scriptures they say, well, the animals came into the ark two by two. That's not true. If you go back to the, um, I believe it's a sixth chapter of um, Genesis, and it's just that within the first couple of verses, you'll find out that there was two of the clean beasts and seven of the unclean that came aboard the ship. Now, two and seven in my mathematics is nine. The problem is we've been taught tradition. We have not been taught Bible. The Bible makes it very clear. And let me turn back to this. I want to read this for you folks so you understand exactly what you're talking about. Oh, and for those of you who may be wondering, um, the only version of the Bible I'll use is the KJV translation, the 1611, not the modern day translation, the 1611. Ah, it's um, Genesis chapter seven. Now listen to this very carefully. And the Lord said unto Noah, Come thou and all thy house into the ark, for thee have I seen righteous before me in this generation. Of every clean beast thou shalt take to thee by sevens, the male and his female. And of beasts that are not clean, by two, the male and his female. And it goes on to talk about the fowls of the air and everything else. It's seven and two. Now, what... Is God talking about when He says a very clean beast by seven, and unclean by two? Even Jewish law will explain this to this every day, and it is in the Bible. Back then, anything that was considered unclean um, was someone or an animal or something that had given birth to an offspring. They were considered unclean because blood had been spilled. Now, according to the Le- um, Levitical law, the, um, um, the woman, if she gave birth to a child, or if an animal had given birth, they were considered unclean for seven days. On the eighth day, um, uh, um, in this case, if it was a male child, they would be circumcised. Clean animals um, were those animals that had not procreated yet. They didn't have kids. Now, so you have seven and nine. Now, it makes sense that it had to have been at least nine, because w- when you think about this, well, um, the lands in Mount Ararat, all the man- animals come out. If there's only two by two, and two elephants are walking down the road, and one falls off the cliff, well, there goes that species. No, it had to have been at least nine so you could propagate the species. This way, it would keep on going. Now, so everyone has left the Ark and they're beginning to set up little colonies around the area and such. And there was one person in particular, his name was Nimrod. I believe he was the son of um, Cush. Well anyways, Nimrod Um, was beginning to set up um, quite a kingdom. And one of the few remaining statues of um, Nimrod shows us um, what he may have looked like. And if that's anything the way he looked like, I mean, he doesn't look all too much like an agreeable sort. You see, the Holy Scripture tells us that Nimrod was a mighty hunter before the Lord. So people think, oh wow, he was hunting and he was a great hunter for God. No, 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 you see, this is the English translation of the Bible, not American English. This back then was known as the King's English, I know, I'm, I'm English. Um, the word before, um, properly translated means against. So Nimrod was a mighty hunter against God. He wasn't for God, he didn't um, worship God, he was against God. Now, as we are saying before, he was really beginning to set up his own kingdom, and um, his kingdom was right in this area. He was setting up in the land of Asher. He established the um, city of Calais, Nineveh, Akkad, Elam, um, Babel, and in this area. He was really beginning to set up his own kingdom. During Nimrod's rule, he constructed one of the greatest constructs in history. Historically speaking, it is known as the Tower of Babylon. Now the Tower of Babylon was a spiraling ziggurat. In other words, it spiraled upwards and upwards, up and to the heavens is what Nimrod wanted it to do. Now this was not some small conical shaped um, structure, it was massive. It was so massive that there was temples inside of this um, construct. And at the very top, there was the main temple dedicated to the false god known as Moloch. Now, Moloch himself was depicted as a horned demon, sometimes a a calf, if you would, and he had um, two horns. Some um, depicted him as one horn, but the um, significance behind what we're saying now is that Moloch was a god, a false god, that demanded sacrifice. You see, back then, parents believed that if they brought their newborn baby and offered him up to Moloch, they would receive financial blessing from him. Now, Moloch was usually depicted, as I said, as this giant um, bull-like animal. Some depicted him with two brass hands over a fire pit. And parents would take their own newborn baby and place them on these hands that were glowing red because they were constantly over a fire pit that was always being fed. Or, if um, the child was um, old enough to walk and such, they would just take the child and throw him into the fire pit. And it's interesting enough that the Bible forbids what it says, um, you will not allow um, the, your son or daughter to pass through the fire. It is referring straight to Moloch, the practice of offering their children up to Moloch for financial blessings. Now, nowadays, we have um, an ancient item that was worn by followers of Moloch who believed that they would receive his financial blessings. It comes in many different sizes and shapes. Middle one still looks like, you know, an antler or the horn from some type of animal. Most common version is a gold horn, which we refer to as the Italian horn. To this very day, you ask anyone who wears the Italian horn, they say, well, we're going to receive financial blessings because of it. And of course, there's many different things that came about because of the Italian horn. Some of it was, you know, the leprechaun staff, um, the fairy's horn, um, the unicorn's horn. All these came about because of the practice of Moloch and worshipping him. Now the Tower of Babylon, as we're saying, had many temples in it. And of course in this complex considering they were worshipping false gods and things like that, there was what was known as temple prostitutes. That was going on at the same time. Um, The reason, among other things, Um, the whole thing spiraled up was because one of the practices in the occult world is known as a spiral dance. It's believed that if um, you're a member of Wicca or some other branch of the occult, even the Illuminati, that the practitioners will dance around in a circle that closes in on itself slowly. And that by the time you get to the center, you release through the cone of power all that so-called metaphysical energy, or, you know, through spells, that you want to cast through and create these things by. It's nonsense, but this is where it comes from. Now, at the time all this was going on, well, Noah, Ham, Shem, and Japheth had heard what had happened. Now, as I said before, I believe it was his uncle Cush, um, no excuse me. Ham had Cush and Cush had Nimrod. So it would be Nimrod's uncle Ham who literally went into the city one day, took Nimrod by the scruff of his neck, dragged him outside the city and cu- literally cut him into pieces. Gruesome and barbaric, I will grant you. But Ham was going to deliver a message and he sent A peace to every single one of those cities that Nimrod had established and to others as a warning to anyone else who would dare continue with this abomination in the eyes of God. He had had it. Ham was not about to tolerate this anymore. Ham and his family was delivered because of God. And he was not going to put up with those who was going to set up false idols and bow down before them. Now, Nimrod's mother, who is known as Semiramis, took this occult religion and it was the very first religion on the face of the earth. Don't get this wrong, folks. Most people say it was Judaism. It was not. It was witchcraft. Semiramis took the first religion, witchcraft, and pushed it underground. Now, While it was underground, she told her priest that she was having, quote-unquote now, an immaculate conception. That is, she was having a child um, without the act of sex. At least this is what she told her priest. The truth of the um, the matter is, and to put this as delicately as I can, Queen Semiramis was having... Relations with her own son Nimrod, and this is how she became pregnant. Well, what had happened? She had indeed, you know, the child nine months later, and according to all the records, she named the child Tammuz. This is one of the few remaining statues we have of Tammuz, but as it is, Temuz was supposed to be Nimrod, come back through the act of reincarnation. You see, this is where we get reincarnation from. This is the first recorded so-called act of reincarnation. Temuz was supposed to have be been Nimrod, come back. Okay? Now, from there a st- story really gets interesting because along the way, by the time Temos is 40 years old. Um, Like his father, he was supposed to have been a great hunter, but he couldn't have been that great because when he was 40, while he was out on the hunt, he was killed by a wild boar. And it's interesting enough that if we turn to our Bibles, in Ezekiel 8.14, there's a very interesting event going on. Now, at this point of history, the Jewish people are uh, under God's heavy hand. It's almost as if they're being cursed by God himself. And um, Ezekiel is petitioning God on behalf of his people, saying, show me what's wrong. You know, where are we at fault? We'll correct it. And one of the things God does, he takes Ezekiel and he brings him to the gate of his own temple. I mean, this is supposed to be the very house of God now. And he brings me before the gate, and this is what Ezekiel sees. Then he brought me to the door of the gate of the Lord's house, which was toward the north, and behold, there sat women weeping for Tammuz Before the house of God himself. Women are weeping over Tammuz over his death. The big question becomes, why were they weeping over Tammuz? Now, according to practice, and this goes on to this very day, in the Catholic religion they have what's known as Lent. Now, Lent is a 40-day period in which you're supposed to um, fast, give up things, you're weeping and wailing over your sins and looking forward to Easter, okay? Temuras, if you remember, was killed when he was forty years old by a wild boar. Those women had um, were actually practicing um, what would become known as Lent. They were weeping and wailing for forty days now over the death of reincarnated um, Nimrod into Tammuz. And among other things, if you remember during um, the Easter tradition, people eat ham. And that ham represents the slain um, boar that slew their false god, Tammuz. Now, we will examine this in greater detail in a, another DVD known as America's Occult Holidays. But for now, This is what Ezekiel 8.14 is talking about. This was the earliest mentions of what would become known as Lent. Now, of course, because Nimrod was come back in the form of um, Tammuz, well, we have the ancient statues of Semiramis, who has now been promoted to the Queen of Heaven, because when we go back and look at this carefully, well, Nimrod was elevated to the status of God. So, it makes common sense that his mother must be a goddess. She's become known, historically speaking, as the Queen of Heaven. She was depicted as um, a motherly figure holding her infant son. Now, if we go throughout the major cultures throughout history, all the way up to the Roman days and such, to where we finally see the Queen of Heaven, Mary, holding the infant child, Jesus. This is where it comes from, ladies and gentlemen. This is not an original idea of someone just said, well, Mary's gonna depict, Um, be depicted as holding Jesus. No. This is, you know, just another perversion. This is simply um, the act of paganism in another culture. You look at um, the ancient statues, compare it all the way up to today, and you will see that it's always the female goddess holding the infant god. Nothing has changed, ladies and gentlemen, in the occult world. Just the names. The practices the belief that it's all been the same ever since Babylon. And on that note, well, as I said, it didn't end there. It simply moved on. And when we get into um, Egypt, well, it really takes an interesting turn. Because there was an event that would be so significant, its repercussions would be felt to this very day. There was a particular um, pharaoh known as Ramses the First. Now, Ramses the First had a sister and one day she's just by um, the Nile River when this wicker basket comes floating by her. Now, it could have just continued but she took the basket out and inside of it was a baby child this child, you would know him as Moses. Now, for the first, um, well, hold on, I should say, um, um, the sister of Pharaoh took him out and um, she presented him before Pharaoh and she was allowed to adopt um, Moses as her own child. So, the Pharaoh was now Moses' uncle. And the son, the Ramesses II that Ramses would have, that Moses would later contend with, was his own cousin. So, for the first forty years of his life, Moses had it made. He was taught in schools in art, literature, the science, mathematics, engineering, and most importantly, the occult. Now, you wouldn't think that this was part of his education, but you have to remember, folks, Egypt was a polytheistic society. They worshipped more gods than most people could name to this very day. So Moses was constantly in and out of the temple every day, as was the practice of the royal family who lived in Egypt and who governed over all the Egyptians. They were in there because, remember, Ramses I, in this case he was considered the physical god. He was the sun god, so he would go into the temple, make his daily offerings and sacrifice. This way, you know, balance or what was known as mat, could be maintained throughout the entire universe. Well, 40 years down the road, Moses um, commits what's known as the unpardonable sin in the Egyptian society. He murdered um, an Egyptian worker Uh, I should say an officer, because as far as I understand he, according to the scriptures, this officer was beating um, one of the Jewish slaves. And Moses took that officer and murdered him. Moses knew that if he was caught he would be executed. Even he, even though he was, you know, um, the nephew of Pharaoh himself, he would not be excused. So, literally, he packed his bags, and he headed out for the land known as Midian. Now, Midian is not exactly what you would call um, a family vacation spot. It is a desolate place. It is a wasteland. It's not the place, as I said, you bring the kiddies out, you know, for a good time. But Moses fled into the land of Midian, and eventually he comes across um, this very important man who has a lot of sheep and is doing a lot of trade business, and um, he is introduced to um, the man's daughter, who's known as Zipporah. Um, Basically, to sum it all up, um, Zipporah meets Moses, Moses meets Zipporah, they like each other, they fall in love, they eventually get married, you know. And um, Moses eventually Himself is doing an incredible um, trade, if you would, in um, in sheep and in, um, in other cattle. Moses has been taken out of his forty years royalty, and is now brought down to the status of shepherd. So for the for, for next forty years, Moses is learning the new family trade, and one day. Um, Near the area known as uh, Mount Sinai, Um, one of the sheep seems to wander off and being the good shepherd that he is, Moses goes after him. I mean, one sheep is as important to him as the whole flock. Now this is where it gets interesting and forgive me if it sounds a little amusing to me because I always think, what would I have done in this situation? Moses goes up there, he sees the sheep and at the same time, he comes across this bush. Nothing spectacular except this bush is burning and it's not being consumed. And at the same time, this bush is speaking to him. The bush basically tells him, I'm God, you're on clean, um, clean and holy ground, take your shoes off now. Moses hits the dirt and I guarantee you I would have been down there faster than him. Now. The bush identifies itself as God. I mean, this is God, folks. I mean, God of all that there is. Not a God, not a false god, this is God. And God said, have I got a job for you. And this is what you're going to do. Moses, you're going to go down into Egypt and you're going to take all my children out of it. You're just going to deliver them out of the hands of Pharaoh. Well, of course, this immediately posed a problem because Moses didn't know how he was going to do this. So he asked God, well, if I tell them I'm just going to take all the um, children out of Egypt, who do I tell them sent me? And God said, you tell them I am that I am sent you. Moses then says, you know, well, um, what if they don't believe me, you know? God says, what is that um, that is by by you? And and it was a rod. And God says, okay, throw it on the ground. He throws it on the ground, it turns into a serpent. Moses runs away. So would I? But God says, pick it up. And as soon as he did, it turned back into a rod. Then God said, put your hand into your uh, robes. And he did, and it came out. And it was all leprosy. And he says, put your hand back in. Put it back in, and the leprosy was gone. And then he says, You will also be able to turn the water into blood. I mean, God gave Moses the ability to perform these miracles. Now that would have just astounded me and convinced me right there, hey, this is gonna be good. But was Moses impressed at that point? No. You would think that Moses would have been impressed because here are miracles he could do. But something's going on here. We will get to it, ladies and gentlemen. And I will explain to you why Moses was not impressed by any of this so far. And then um, Moses is literally trying to come up with an excuse to get out of this. As I said, he wasn't impressed, and he's trying to back out of doing this. And believe it or not, he really had a good reason. He even says to God, he says, God, but, you know, um, I'm not a good speaker. I have a slow tongue, and the Bible verifies that God is really beginning to get angry here with Moses. God knows um, Moses really is trying to get out of this. Because, you see, in the book of Luke, it clearly points out that Moses was a man of great words and a great orator. He could really wow the crowds. In here, he's trying to say, well, God, I can't speak well, I have a slow tongue. No. Moses was trying to get out of this, but we'll get into that. Finally, God, you know, says, Moses, you're going. You can take your brother Aaron, but you're going. Now, we have to take a look at this now from Pharaoh's perspective, because let's face it, Pharaoh himself is considered to be the actual God upon the face of the earth. I mean, he is a representation of Ra, the sun god. He, right now is God for all, you know, of Egypt and for the rest of the world as far as all his worshippers were concerned. So, like Moses, when Pharaoh, um, Ramses II, or Pharaoh, or Ramses the Great was growing up, he would have been schooled in the best education possible. He would have, um, been schooled in the arts and literature, mathematics, the science, and of course, the occult religion, just like the rest of his family was, because every day, if you remember, they'd go into the temple and they'd worship their pagan false gods. Um, as a child, he would be brought from point A to point B on chariots or on litters, and um, he would always have the best clothes and everything, and he's sitting in his house on his throne, you know, the whole place is covered in marble, and. Um, probably tapestries with leaves, everything, the place is absolutely gorgeous. He has his slaves here, servants there, everything. And all of a sudden, Moses shows up. Now, at this point, Moses is 80 years old and his brother who's with him, Aaron, is 83. Both smelling like sheep, both looking like they need a new tailor, and they walk up to you. Pharaoh Ramses II, who is considered God upon the face of the earth, and they tell him, you are going to let the entire workforce of Egypt go. Is Pharaoh going to buy this? Pharaoh's going, "Uh, you've got to be kidding. Okay, so, per his instruction, um, Moses turns to Aaron and says, okay, Aaron, cast your rod down. So, Aaron just takes his rod, throws it down, and it becomes a serpent. Did this impress Pharaoh? No. You see, Pharaoh turned to his magicians and said, okay, take care of this. The magicians took their rods, they cast them down, and they also became became serpents. Now, granted, the rod of Aaron swallowed up the rods of the magicians, but the magicians also duplicated a miracle of God, didn't they? They turned their um, rods into serpents also, didn't they? Or did they duplicate a miracle? We'll follow along with this. Well, Moses and Aaron go back to Sinai and basically tell God, okay, we did it. It didn't go over well. So God says, okay, Moses, this is what's going to happen. You're going to go back down there. Pharaoh's going to be by the waters. You're going to tell him to let my people go. And if he doesn't cooperate, you're going to turn all the water into blood. Aaron, I know, was psyched for this, but again, Moses was not impressed. And, as I said, we're going to get into this. We're going to find out what's going on, but, okay, Moses is just going to go down there. Now, what's going on? Um, God had said Pharaoh's going to be by the waters. Now, you have to understand, Pharaoh as God, you know, Ra, um, would be responsible for mat, which is keeping the balance of life, death, and the entire universe. Part of his duties he would go down to the Nile and he would bless the waters so that it would provide life and give, you know, health and substance to the land and to his people. This was part of his job as a physical representation of Ra on the face of the earth. So, Um, Pharaoh is down there by the waters doing his thing and Moses and Aaron shows up and Pharaoh must have just been thinking to himself, oh not these guys again. And basically Moses tells Pharaoh let my people go. And Pharaoh goes no. Moses turns to Aaron, Aaron do your thing. Aaron just takes that rod, he goes down there, he slaps the Nile River and sure enough it just starts turning into blood. Did this impress Pharaoh? Not in the least. Pharaoh turned to his occult buddies and said okay take care of this. They walked over, they hit um, the um, waters also and where they struck it turned into blood. Strike two for our side. You see, the magicians, on the surface it appears, duplicated another miracle of God. So Moses left. Now the waters would stay like that for a week. In the meantime, God is telling Moses, okay, this is what you're gonna do. And so, once again, they go down there, they confront Pharaoh in his own throne room, and says, Pharaoh, you're gonna obey God, and you're gonna um, let uh, people go. Now this got um, Pharaoh's attention. He, he said, God, God sent you. Uh, which one? You see, you have to understand, this is a polytheistic society. There are literally hundreds of gods that they worship. Pharaoh was inquiring as to which god. Now of course, um, he was eventually told, I am that I am sent you, but this didn't impress him either. Finally, Moses says, okay, Aaron, I want you to go to the waters, and I want you to bring up the frogs. He goes down to the waters of the Nile, and he calls the frogs up from all directions. They are literally just pouring in everywhere. They're going into the throne room, into the bedrooms, into the game room, into the TV room. I mean, they're just everywhere. Did this impress Pharaoh? No. Pharaoh once again called for his occult friends to come over. They went down to the waters and they called the frogs out also. Now, something is going on here that most of us are not paying attention to. On the surface, it does appear as if the magicians are duplicating the miracles of God. And then we have to consider the other part of what's going on that Moses is not impressed by any of this and Pharaoh is not impressed by any of this. So, what is going on here? You see, God was using a three-part psychological plan to deliver his children and it was so almost inconceivably brilliant and almost baffles the imagination. You see, first of all, why wasn't Moses impressed? We have to remember, for the first 40 years of his life, Moses was a prince of Egypt. He was going every day into these temples and worshipping these false gods, and of course he would see these magicians performing all these miracles. So Moses had no reason to be impressed at this point. Um, Was Pharaoh impressed? No not just because he had seen these miracles before, but because if you go right into the books of Exodus, you'll find out that God had already hardened Pharaoh's heart. So you see, you don't harden a person's heart and expect to impress them. So if Moses is not supposed to be impressed and if Pharaoh is not supposed to be impressed, who is supposed to be impressed here? How about... One and a half to two and a half million Jewish slaves who had been kept in an occult polytheistic society for 400 years. You see, the Israelites had um, been completely saturated and inundated with all this paganism. God was using a plan to show who really is God here by um, duplicate, well, I should say, the first three miracles where um, Aaron turned his rod into a serpent called, um, and I should say, created blood out of the Nile and called all the frogs out of the river. Did those magicians duplicate God? No, it was the other way around. God was duplicated in them. You see, think about this for a second. How can a mere mortal human being expect to duplicate a perfect God. An imperfect man duplicating perfect God, it's not going to happen. As I said, God had a three-part plan here. The first part of the plan, which, you know, called um, the frogs out of the water, the blood into the water, and the um, serpents into snakes, uh, uh, and the um, rods into serpents, God was saying, I can do anything those magicians can do. God was duplicating them, it was not the other way around. The second part where we see the rest of the plagues, God was saying, I can outdo anything that these magicians think that they can do. And even the magicians themselves, it's in God's word, told Pharaoh, surely this is the finger of God. And the last one where God struck down all of Egypt and took the firstborn sons of everyone, God was saying, I am the God over life and death, I am the God over Pharaoh, I am the God over the magicians, I am God over life and death, I am God. This is how God was getting his children's attention, and it worked. Finally, Pharaoh, even though his heart had been hot and said, Moses take him, get out of here. and. We know what had happened later. They all went to the mountains of Sinai. Moses went to converse with um, God for a while, and rumors were going on that Moses had died or disappeared. So what did they do? They backslide right into paganism, right into their old occult practices. They made the sacred bull of Nimrod out into a golden calf has been depicted, and they started bow down and worshiping it. Well, the rest, as they say, is history, and eventually, of course, um, the occult spread, you know, from Egypt over into Mesopotamia, Persia, Assyria, into um, eventually into um, the Greco-Roman world, and then eventually into the British Isles. And one of the most noted archaeological um, findings there is the area known as Stonehenge. Now, Stonehenge is in the Salisbury Plains of England, that would be along the southern parts of England, closer towards the shorelines. And um, it is made out of rare blue granite. Now, um, these um, granite granite blocks um, literally weigh um, some over five to ten tons. I mean, so the big question is, how were they put there to begin with? You know, no one can um, answer that one for sure. Though, you know, of course, there are uh, myths and legends for my country that says the um, mighty sorcerer um, Merlin called them, you know, into existence. And, you know, fanciful tale and all this, but, you know, that's all it is as a tale. There's no truth behind, you know, Merlin summoning these stones. Now, interesting enough, um, as well known as Stonehenge is, that crop circle of stones, there's an even bigger one. It's known as the, um, um, the, crop, the, um, the circle of Avesbury. Avesbury is more than a mile in circumference. It is so massive. Now it is believed that, especially if you look at it side by side, that Avesbury originally looked like this. You notice, you could fit, I don't know, how many Stonehenge's into that area. Now, interesting enough about Stonehenge, is archaeologists have already unearthed more than 4,000 human skeletal remains. And they were offerings as sacrifices. This has been confirmed. But, as I said, this is just under Stonehenge, and that's a small circle. Think of how many must be lying underneath Avesbury itself, And there are literally dozens upon dozens of these ancient circles, these megalithic stone circles throughout England. You see, the reason these were built was for um, the worship of pagan gods. You see, Historically speaking, oh, it's been about 3,000 years ago now. But in those areas of England, approximately from 900 BC to 900 AD, there was a nomadic people known as the Celts. Now, the Celts were a barbaric, warlike tribe, and they had a priest, a priestly class, caste—excuse me—known as the Druids. Now, Druids, um, from the Gaelic, means men of oak. Now, these Druid priests held all power in their community. Um, They could decide when um, to worship, where you would worship, um, who could serve in the military, who could get married, who would hold any type of um, official um, position in the tribes. Literally, the Druids held all power and it would be at places like Stonehenge where they would be worshipping um, their false gods and this would be done eight times a year. Um, Usually um, you'd find them worshipping during the night of Samhain which is October 29th to the 31st or what we call Halloween as it says we're gonna get more into um, these occult holidays in another dvd part of this series that will be called america's occult holidays the next one would be yule which is on december 21st then there's the night of imbold which is also known as Candlemas in the old um english um, language um, which was on um, february 2nd um, which we now nowadays call um groundhog's day march 21st um, the night of ostara May 1st, which is the second highest night of human sacrifice on the Illuminati calendar, known as Veltine. Um, Lithra, which is on June 21st. Lunasad, which is August 1st. And then Mabin, which is September 21st. Now, the highest night of those eight nights of human sacrifice was Samhain. It was a three-day fire festival. It lasted October 29th the 30th and the 31st, and to this very day, the ancient bonfires are still lit throughout the British Isles. Um, and this is where we get the modern-day version of Halloween fun. You see, during that night, the Druids would meet at these sacred stone circles. They would take these columns that were filled with um, an apple cider-like substance. It, you know, something resembling mead way back then. And they would light these fires and then they would leave and literally go out and trick-or-treat. And, and I'll explain to you what their version was. They would be going out throughout the countryside, leaving these stone arm um, circles, going to these various castles, mansions, and other places of nobility and other places, and literally banging on the door and they'd be screaming out, trick-or-treat. But the question is, what did they mean by it? Now, the treat was, if the lord of the manor gave someone over to them to be used as a human sacrifice, they would leave a treat. Now that treat was usually a gourd, um, um, a pumpkin, which is now, which is used more nowadays, or a turnip, that was filled, that had been previously filled, um, filled now with human fat, they would light it and leave it on the front doorstep. Now, that was supposed to protect everyone inside of the house from all the demonic forces that they would be summoning for those nights. Now, here's the trick. If you did not cooperate with the druids, they would take blood and draw the six pointed star known as a hexagram that has a circle around it on your door, and usually, someone that night inside of that house, that castle, that mansion would usually be. Um, would usually die from fear, from all the forces that they would um, be able to actually see with their eyes and that would be sent against them. Now, many hours later, the Druids would take all those um, people that was given to them as offerings, and they would put them in this huge, gigantic figure that was made out of wicker reed. It was known as the Wicker Man. Now, usually a week before the Nights of Samhain, or what's called Halloween, the Druids had given orders to the Celtic warriors to go out and gather literally thousands and thousands of pieces of reed. And Well, you've seen reed before, you know, you've seen furniture and other things made out of um, reed. And they would build, as I said, this huge um, figure, usually it was around 30, 35 feet tall. It was massive. Known as the Wicker Man. It looked like a human being, with, the, with arms and legs and everything. But the difference is, it had cages running throughout it. This way the Druids would put in these human beings into those cages, and there would, um, in some of the cages there'd be animals, some would also have food offerings, but these human beings would be put throughout the Wicker Man, and if there wasn't enough room, the druids had already had these um, wicker cages made and throw the rest in that. And during the ceremony that evening, um, the druids would offer these human beings and everything else up to um, the god of fire, known as Kernanos. And um, the um, the cages, um, the wicker man, will all of a sudden, you know, just burst into flames, and all these also was supposed to be offered up to the Celtic lord of the dead known as Samhain, which is why it's called Samhain to this very day. Now, interesting enough, um, before um, these poor people were murdered for another pagan god, the Druids had an interesting um, game, they had a couple of interesting games that they'd like to play, but one in particular, Um, they would take and line up all these victims and they would bring them up to that cauldron. Now remember this cauldron had um, an apple cider-like liquid boiling in it. And when I say boiling I'm not kidding, it's been boiling for hours now at 212 degrees now. And they would take an apple and they would throw it in. They would tell that person, if you can take that apple out On your first try, we will set you free, you can go home. Now, if I was to say, how many of you people would do it? Well, everyone would jump at it. I mean, you'd get a chance to go home and be free, right? But remember, as I just stated, that substance is rapidly boiling at 212 degrees Fahrenheit. That's the boiling point of a liquid. Most people, um, literally, if they wanted to live, they would have to, t- they would have to do this. It would, it would be their only way out. I mean, but the end result was absolutely abominable. I mean, these people are plunging their heads into boiling liquid. I mean, their flesh literally is being boiled away. And for those who survived, I mean, because of that boiling liquid, I mean, think about their eyes, their um, vision, for um, the liquid that seeped in would be blinding them. How many of them suffered um, loss of hearing because of the damage done by the liquid? How many of them would be suffering respiratory problems because of all the liquid that may have been boiling down, let alone the flesh that may have melted off, loss of hair, who knows what? But that was for the survivors. Those who didn't. Get the apple on the first try, they were thrown on the ground and they were immediately beheaded right there on the spot. That's what happened to the losers. Now, of course, as I said, others had already been put into the Wicker and then um, the rest of the ceremony, and those poor people would die. Now, all the while, the Druids on their own robes, had, um, literally had different occult symbols and other things painted on it, and eventually wore these masks, and, and sometimes it was just hoods, with symbols and such, and they all, they did all that because during the Nights of Samhain, it's believed that the veil that separates our world from the spiritual world is, comes together and is at its thinnest, so that spirits can cross over and visit us for those nights. But there was nothing that guaranteed that these spirits would be benevolent, you know, nothing said that they would be good, kind and friendly and in a good mood to chat. No. A lot of times, according to um, what I'd been taught, they were very vicious um, creatures, so in order to control them, they painted these symbols on their robes that were supposed to have magical protection. They would cast circles of power that would protect them from these literally demons that would be rising. And as I said, they had masks and other things, or, or um, symbols painted on their hoods. And of course this is where you get your um, modern day Halloween trick-or-treat outfits, you know, the costumes and such. But all these things, as I said, this is where you get um, your modern-day version of Halloween, because you've got these people going out um, trick-or-treating, um, um, carving pumpkins, um, bobbing for apples that were in these costumes, and um, for those Christians who try to say, well, we don't do that, we have, you know, um, a harvest festival, guess what? It's the exact same thing, because for those members um, who were Celtic warriors and such who couldn't make it to these stone circles at night, they went out and they had a harvest festival very much like what the Christians are doing to this very day. So if you're having, you know, time to say, well, this is our version of it, guess what? You're just creating a perversion and aversion to meet your needs so you could celebrate this pagan festival, which is something you should not be doing. Now. From there, as we we're saying, um, from Babylon to Egypt, to Mesopotamia, to um, Assyria, to Rome, to Greece, up to you know, the British Isles, the Babylonian plague has spread throughout the world. Even um, in the last book, the 66th book of the Bible, um, the book of Revelation, warns us, that as in the days of Babylon, these things would also happen again. And that eventually, during the seven year tribulation period, Babylon the Great would fall. So you see, this religion, this very first religion, which started back in Babylon and would continue because we didn't learn anything, we just allowed it to continue, has come around full circle and it's about to close in on itself during the tribulation period. Now, I know there are those people out there who are now trying to preach um, that there's no such thing as a rapture, that none of this is going to happen, that our version is what's going to happen. Well, you know what? And I don't mean this in a bad way, folks, but you know what? I don't care what anyone else's version is. I know what God says on these matters. We can call it what it is. But the truth of the matter is, um, those people who says, well, the rapture is a new idea, it only began in the 1800s, they obviously don't know their history because I can trace um, um, what's been taught about the rapture all the way back to the first century AD. This is not something new, folks, when it comes to rapture, the tribulation period or anything like that. This is something very old. This is stuff that was written about and talked about during the days when the true apostles, walk the earth. Not the false prophets and false apostles that we have nowadays. No, no, no. Those are just false ones. The Bible wants us that those people would come, yeah, okay, we've got to put up with them also. But we don't have to put up with the false teachings that they um, bring with them. The Bible makes it very clear that these things are going to happen. And as it was in the days of Babylon, as the Bible predicted, so it is now. These things are coming to a point. So it's really gonna be up to us, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, if we're gonna allow the curse of Babylon to continue, or if we, as true children of God, are gonna put an end to it. The choice really is up to you. Now we are at part three, known as the Illuminati Seven-Part Plan for Global Conquest. And I have finally settled down, thanks to Chris Pinto. Um, I can't help but when I start talking about certain biblical events and things of that nature, I really get wound up, folks. I really do. So um, forgive me, you know, I'm a little bit more down to earth now. Um, The Illuminati, as we um, said earlier in this DVD, um, through Dr. Adam Weishaupt, had developed a seven-part plan to create a new world order. And what we're going to do, we're going to go over um, those seven parts to see if their plan has um, been coming about. Now, one of the easiest way to prove um, this point is to go to a document which has caused more controversy than I know what to do with. That document is known as The Protocols of the Learned Elders of Zion. Now, again, in another DVD down the road in this series, I will be proving beyond any shadow of a doubt the validity of those protocols. But for now, let's just stick to the subject matter at hand. Now, how the protocols came into our hands is a story in itself, because as far as I um, understand, a child lady, or what you would call a cleaning lady, um, had accidentally found a copy of the minutes of the meetings of the Illuminati, which are now called the Protocols of the Learned Elders of Zion, while she was cleaning up um, where these, um, this meetings, um, these meetings, I should say, had been held. Um, after she read to them, she literally um, was afraid of what they said, and she gave them over to her husband. And her husband, after he read them, didn't know what to do with them either. So, the protocols were then given over to Professor Nihilus, who was a Russian Orthodox priest. Now, Professor Nihilus had kept them in his possession for a number of years. He himself was uncertain as to what he should do with such um, damnable information. Finally, he decided um, he would publish them. Now, the problem was, by the time the second edition of the protocols were being prepared, the Russian Revolution of 1917 had happened. Anyone who was caught with a copy of the protocols was executed on site. There was no court, there was no questions. A gun was taken out and they were killed period. The um, publishing house where the protocols had been published, had been burnt to the ground, all copies were destroyed. And as I said, if you even were caught with one, you were killed as a result. It was believed that all the documents had finally been destroyed and no one could unveil the truth of the protocols. However, there was a correspondence from his Majesty's Court in England known as Victor Marsden. He himself could read, write, and speak Russian fluently. Now this is important to know because it would be years later that Victor Marsden would find the only existing copy, the Russian translation of the protocols, the only existing copy in the London Library. Now How it ended up there, no one knows to this very day. We just don't know how a copy got there. But God be praised it did because Victor Marsden himself decided those protocols had to be translated into English and he himself made sure that the protocols of the Learned Elders of Zion would finally be revealed to the world. Because in them you can find the seven-part plan for the Illuminati's global conquest. Now, what exactly are these plans? What do they consist of? Well, according to the writings, you will find, first of all, from Dr. Adam Weishaupt, and then in the protocols, you're going to find that they match up perfectly. The first protocol, um, well I should say the first um, of the seven-part plan, for global conquest calls for the abolition of all ordered government. Second one, the abolition of all private property. The third, abolition of all inheritance. Then the abolition of all patriotism. Abolition of all religion. Abolition of the family. And the seven-part plan calls for, in their own words, the creation of a new world order. So what we're going to do, we're going to examine each and every single one of these Um, parts of the seven plan, through the protocols, and see if they line up. In the protocols, we're going to be speaking now on the abolition of all ordered government, it says the following. Political freedom is an idea but not a fact. This idea one must know how to apply whenever it appears necessary with this bait of an idea to attract the masses of the people to one's party for the purpose of crushing another who is in authority. Whether a state exhausts itself in its own convulsions, whether its internal discord brings it under the power of external foes, in any case it can be accounted irretrievably lost. It is in our power. In any state in which there is a bad organization of authority, an impersonality of laws of the rulers who have lost their personality amid the floods of rights ever multiplying out of liberalism I find a new right to attack by the right of the strong and to scatter to the winds all existing forces of order and regulation to reconstruct all institutions and to become the sovereign lord of those who have left to us the rights of their power by laying them down voluntarily in their liberalism. Here's a good one, the constitution scales of these days will shortly break down, but we have established them with a certain lack of accurate balance in order that they may oscillate incessantly, until they wear through the pivot on which they turn. This one, ladies and gentlemen, you're just going to love. This is the Illuminati (coughs) owning up to something of great importance. When we introduce into the state organism the poison of liberalism, its whole political complexion underwent a change. States have been seized with a mortal illness, blood poisoning. All that remains is to await the end of their death agony. Speaking of um, their coming Antichrist, though they don't call him the Antichrist, they refer to him as the king of the despots, he will have the right to propose temporary laws and even new departures and the governmental working. The pretext both for the one and the other being the requirements for the supreme welfare of the state. Useless changes of forms of government to which we instigated the goyim, this is where you need to translate it into chattel. You see, as I've explained to everyone and in a book I had written, Um, this is a coded document. You have to know how to decodify the document so you can accurately see what it's really telling you. One of the words is goyim. Whenever you see that word you might as well just change it into chattel. Chattel being human livestock or just human cattle. Useless changes a form of government to whence we instigated the goyim or chattel when we were undermining their state structures will have so wearied the people by that time that they will prefer to suffer anything under us rather than, risk the, rather than run the risk of enduring again all the agitations and miseries they have gone through. It is for this reason, ladies and gentlemen, that we are constantly finding ourselves in a war situation. We ourselves, America, have never historically gone out and, you know, picked a fight with a neighborhood bully to start a war. No. We have always been thrust into it. And this is because the orders of the Illuminati to their political puppets here in America have made it so. And of course, the last one, um, which we're in right now, as a result of 9-11. But there's a lot more to 9-11 than what meets the eye. And again, and another, um, Um, Later on, we will be talking about what really happened at 9-11. But, continuing on. While preaching liberalism to the chattel, we at the same time keep our own people and our agents in a state of unquestioning submission. Our power in the present tottering conditions of all forms of power will be more invincible than any other because it will remain invisible until the moment when it has gained such strength that no cunning can any longer undermine it. Oh, here's one that so smacks about what's going on right now, ladies and gentlemen. This, then, is the program of the new constitution. We shall make law, right, and justice, in the guise of proposals to the legislative cause, by decrees of the president under the guise of general regulations of orders of the Senate and of resolutions of the state council in the guise of ministerial orders, and in the case a suitable occasion should arise in the form of a revolution in the state. Abolition of all ordered governments is the first part of the Illuminati seven-part plan for Global Congress. I believe that there is more than sufficient enough evidence in this document to prove that this is exactly what they intend to do. The first being the abolition of all ordered government. Now, interesting enough, according to the Constitution, And what we've been taught in high school, well, we were taught that Americans would have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But you know, that is not what it originally stated. Originally, it said the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of property. You see, by having property, we become independent, totally independent. We don't need to depend on the government then. No one can take that property away. It is ours. But, Weishaupt saw the flaw in that. You know, if we allowed, from Weishaupt's perspective, people to own their own property, well then, um, they'd be totally autonomous, independent. We wouldn't be able to um, control them. So, it was changed from life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, not to property. And we'll get to that in a moment. Let's see what um, the protocols have to say about the abolition of all private property. We shall create by all the secret subterranean methods open to us, and with the aid of gold, which is all in our hands, A universal economic crisis whereby we shall throw upon the streets whole mobs of workers simultaneously in all the countries of Europe. These mobs will rush delightedly to shed the blood of those whom, in the simplicity of their ignorance, they have envied from their cradles and whose property they will then be able to loot. It is essential, therefore, for us, at whatever cost, to deprive them of their land. This object will be best attained by increasing the burden upon landed property and loading lands with debt. These measures will check landholding and keep it in a state of humble and unconditional submission. The rich must be aware that it is their duty to place a part of their superfluities at the disposal of the state, since the state guarantees them security of possession of the rest of their property and the right of honest gains. I say honest, for the control over property will do away with robbery on a legal basis. Therefore, we must not stop at bribery, deceit, and treachery when they should serve towards the attainment of our end, In politics, one must know how to seize the property of others without hesitation, if by it we secure submission and sovereignty. Taxes upon property and other things has become a common day event now because of what the protocols um, dictated the Illuminati would do. And for those people who think that they own their property, you really, really need to check um, into the law because, you see, you don't own the property. Technically speaking, you're just renting it. Those um, um, taxes that's put on you every quarterly or or, or every year, those are your land taxes. Now, if you don't pay your land taxes, let's face it, you lose your property. That's it. And even if you were to will that, to a family member or friend, the government has guaranteed that they would still gain more money from that because it's called an inheritance tax. And if the inheritance tax isn't paid, that person um, doesn't get the property either. So you see, by constant taxation, be it um, quarterly over the year or every year, the government is generating billions of billions of dollars and putting it into their... Um, pockets. So no, you don't own your property outright. You can't really give it away as an inheritance because then they have to pay their taxes and keep paying their taxes. And this is what the Illuminati meant when they said we will do away with robbery by legal methods. And that's exactly what they did. The third part of the Illuminati's plan for global conquest calls for the abolition of all inheritance. This is what they have to say on it. Purchase receipt of money or inheritance will be subject to the payment of a stamp progressive tax. Any transfer of property, whether money or other, without evidence of payment of this tax, which will be strictly registered by names, will render the former holder liable to pay interest on the tax from the moment of transfer of these sums up to the discovery of his evasion of declaration of the transfer. This one says it all. Just strike an estimate of how many times such taxes as these will cover the revenue of the chattel states. That's it, ladies and gentlemen. Straight and to the point, they said that they're just going to abolish um, inheritance. You know, if you don't um, pay your taxes for transferring property or anything else as an inheritance, the person loses it. And even this one says how many times they're going to tax you over and over and over again and how much money they're going to make as a result of it. Now the fourth part of the Illuminati seven-part plan for global conquest calls for the abolition of all patriotism. Now, it's really interesting, ladies and gentlemen, until recently, as a result of nine eleven, patriotism in America had taken a beating. Because I could remember days when I'd see parades downtown, um, women would be crying when they saw old glory flying by, men would take off their hats, old veterans would be saluting the flag and everything, you know. and. Um, Nowadays, um, people have the legal right to burn the symbol of Americana, Um, which for me is unreprehensible. I don't know how it has gotten this far out of hand, but I do know it was part of the Illuminati seven-part plan. And this is what they have to say on it. It is with this object in view that we are constantly by means of our press, the newspapers, arousing a blind confidence in these theories, which our agent specialists have cunningly pieced together for the purpose of educating their minds in the direction we want. Do not suppose for a moment that these statements are empty works or words. Think carefully of the successes we arranged for Darwinism, Marxism, Nietzscheism. They admit, in their own writings, they're the ones who started and made sure Darwin would succeed, Karl Marx would succeed, and of course Nietzsche. And they did it, um, mind you, through the press. (coughs) And we'll get into that later on in the tape series. Next one. We appear on the scene. <coughs> excuse me. We appear on the scene as alleged saviors of the workers from this oppression when we propose to him to enter the ranks of our fighting forces. And here are their fighting forces: socialists, anarchists, communists. What does communism, socialism, or anarchy got to do with patriotism? absolutely nothing. It erodes all genuine feelings of being true and loyal to a person's nation. And even by their own admonition, they've been destroying this through the press. And trust me, ladies and gentlemen, there's other avenues that they've been doing, such as the educational system in the United States of America that we have right now. I can remember when I was growing up, um, before we would begin class, we would stand up, put our hands over our hearts, and say the Pledge of Allegiance. Where's that gone to, ladies and gentlemen? They threw that out when they threw the Bible and God out of the classroom. Trust me, patriotism has been taking a beating. And I guarantee you, what's happened now in America as a result of 9-11, it's not going to last much longer. That, I can promise, because the Illuminati will not allow it to happen. Now the fifth part of the Illuminati's plan calls for the abolition of all religion. Now remember, the Bible tells us, and I'm going to show you further documents down um, the road, that um, there was only going to be a one-world religion, and that will be the occult. Revelation 18:23b makes this very, very carefully. It says, "For by thy sorceries were all." nations deceived. Not some, but all the nations of the world are going to be deceived, and going to be handed over to the Antichrist through the occult. And this is part of the Illuminati's plan. Take a look in what they have to say about the abolition of religion. When we come into our kingdom, it will be undesirable for us that there should exist any other religion than ours of the one God with whom our destiny is bound up by our position as the chosen people and through whom our same destiny is united with the destinies of the world. We must therefore sweep away all other forms of belief. And here's one, ladies and gentlemen, as far as I'm concerned, that says it all. Five words, but it is so true. Time was when faith ruled. Five simple words, but it's so profound. There was a time when we were a people ruled by our faith. We believed in God. We believed in his precept, we believed in his holy word, every word of it. And now, because we have absolute stupid, and I'll say it again for what it is absolute stupid beliefs in um, Darwinism and his ridiculous theory on human evolution. All these things have led us away from placing our faith in all that we are in the hands of living God. Five words. Time was when faith ruled. But I'll tell you right now, ladies and gentlemen, with very few people, that's true. It's just not like it used to be. This next one. It is with this object in view that we are constantly, by means of our press, arousing a blind confidence in these theories. Notice they're pushing you towards theories such as the theory of evolution, but not pushing you towards the fact that there is God. Ah, Here's a good one, ladies and gentlemen. We have long past taken to discredit the priesthood of the channel, and thereby to ruin their mission on the earth, which in these days might still be a great hindrance to us. Day by day, its influence on the peoples of the world is falling lower. You see, they, the Illuminati, are well aware of what our mission on the earth is, and that's to follow the, um, the great commission, which God commanded us to follow, and that is to um, go throughout the entire world and make believers of all men. But the Illuminati, the enemy of all Christians, was on the side of Satan, and, of course, their followers um, have done everything to make sure that our mission would never succeed, that they would stop us at every point. And let's face it, we would not expect them to do anything else, ladies and gentlemen. This has been a very long spiritual war, it's been going on for thousands of years, but God be praised. As far as I see it, it's going to come to um, a spearhead shortly where God will finally put his foot down and say, enough is enough. The abolition of the family is the sixth part of the Illuminati's plan. We shall destroy among the child the importance of the family and its educational value. That is the only one I took out, ladies and gentlemen, because it's so straightforward, so plain, it can't be argued. Simply stated, we shall destroy among the channel, the importance of the family and its educational value. Now, let's face it, ladies and gentlemen, when you have such complete morons, and forgive me for putting it like that, who are trying to tell us how to run our families. And when I say that, I'm talking one person in particular I will never forget. How many of you remember um, this expression, it takes a village? Now, that was Hillary Clinton, or should I say Senator Clinton, or wannabe President Clinton. She was the one who was saying, well, it takes a whole village of people to educate, you know, one child. You know, to make them one person? One kid? Um, Ladies and gentlemen, this is not the child of the devil we're talking about. This is not the Antichrist. This is a normal kid we're talking about. It does not take a whole village to educate one child. This is the responsibility of the family unit, of the parent. This is, you know, the parents' part to make sure that they, good, that they do get a good quality education in America, which is every individual's right. This is not a, the government's gonna come in and we're gonna um, um, do this, um, it takes a whole village thing. That is absolutely codswallop. I don't know, you know, what Hillary Clinton thought um, she was coming up with there, but I'll tell you right now, it was one of the most idiotic things I've ever heard of in my days. And, of course, the seventh part of the Illuminati seven-part plan called for the creation of a new world order. Now, listen to this. Now, I kept this one again because I wanted you to understand the significance of what this statement is saying. We shall make law, right, and justice. It's the Illuminati who's going to determine what the laws are, what is right, and by their version, what is called justice. I could read the whole thing, but this is what they're going to do. This is what their new world order is going to be made up of. We will tell you what the laws are. We will tell you what is right, and we are going to tell you, in our opinion, what is just and what is not just. Now, listen to this one. Away with them and give us one king over all the earth who will unite us and annihilate the causes of discord, frontiers, nationalities, religions, state, debts, who will give us peace and quiet which we cannot find under our rulers and representatives. Ladies and gentlemen, you are hearing literally biblical prophecy in action. Revelation chapter 13 tells us of the arrival of the Antichrist and that, he will arise as the global dictator, the one king over the entire earth, and who will give us peace and quiet, which we cannot find under our rulers and representatives. Do you realize that's exactly what Matthew 24 is telling us? Because people are going to cry, you know, um, for peace, peace, and pay for peace at any cost. This, exactly what the Bible prophesized would happen. And the interesting thing is, even though the Illuminati believes all this is their idea, they have no idea, of course, that God has already foreseen it and has already, has already made all his countenance. He's given us the warnings and um, his prophecies, and we are now seeing what God um, has been warning us about all along. We can see these things coming. Useless changes of forms of government to which we instigated the channel when we were undermining their state structures will have so wearied the peoples by that time that they will prefer to suffer anything under us rather than run the risk of enduring again all the agitations and miseries they have gone through. Now if you remember, I told you before, they referred to um, this Antichrist leader as the, um, as the despot, the king of the despots and all that. Listen to this. It is only with a despotic ruler that plans can be elaborated extensively and clearly in such a way as to distribute the whole properly among the several parts of the machinery of the state. From this the conclusion is inevitable that a satisfactory form of government for any country is one that concentrates in the hands of one responsible person. Without an absolute despotism, there can be no existence for civilization civilization, which is carried on not by the masses, but by their guide, whosoever that person may be. He's called the Antichrist. When the hour strikes for our sovereign Lord of all the world, the Antichrist, to be crowned, it is with these same hands which will sweep away everything that might be a hindrance thereof. We shall so wear down the chattel that they will be compelled to offer us international power of a nature that by its position will enable us without any violence gradually to absorb all the state forces of the world and to form a super government. In place of the rulers of today, we shall set up a bogey which will be called the super government administration. Its hands will reach out in all directions like nippers, and its organization will be of such colossal dimensions that it, cannot fall to sub- that it cannot fail to subdue all the nations of the world. But we will not give them peace until they openly acknowledge our international supergovernment and with submission. And our kingdom will be distinguished by a despotism of such magnificent proportions as to be at any moment and in every place in a position to wipe out any chattel who opposes us by deed or word. The administrators, whom we will choose from among the public with strict regards to their capacities for servile obedience, will not be persons trained in the arts of government, and will therefore easily become pawns in our game in the hands of men of learning and genius who will be their advisors, specialists bred and reared from early childhood to rule the affairs of the whole world. And the last one. In this difference in capacity for thought between the chattel and ourselves may be clearly discerned the seal of our position on the chosen people and of our higher quality of humanness. their higher quality of humanists. I always got to chuckle out of that. You see, the Illuminati and their seven-part plan, they're doing all this because they have a higher quality of humanness. You just don't understand these things. So they're doing all these things for your benefit, for your good. You just are too stupid to realize this. You know, that's what they're saying. But I think, ladies and gentlemen, it is quite obvious by now that the Illuminati's seven-part plan is easily proven through the protocols. And if we take a good look at the biblical prophecies, we'll find that everything that they're aiming and striving towards had already been revealed to us through the Bible. God revealed in Revelations chapter 17 and 18 um, how the Illuminati have... Three things that grant them their absolute or or almost um, unlimited power: um, their religion, their politics, and their money. We even wa- um, warned about the um, the Illuminati and their activities in um, Revelation um, chapter three and four, uh, chapter two and three, excuse me, where we ta- where we are told that these people are of the synagogue of Satan, and that they you know pretend to be Jewish but they're not; Their practices say otherwise. The seven-part plan, the abolition of all ordered government, of private property, inheritance, patriotism, religion, the family, and the creation of a new world order, it's all here, ladies and gentlemen. Not one of these things um, are going to be around much longer. Um, Do we live in an ordered government here in the United States? I think everyone is aware of the fact that someone else is pulling the strings and that We have more crooked politicians um, up there in Washington than what we know what to do with. Private property, forget it, ladies and gentlemen. There's no such thing. Um, Inheritance, oh yeah. If you want to keep your inheritance, um, then you're going to have to pay your taxes. If not, you don't get the inheritance. Patriotism, we have already proven, have um, taken a beating. It's only now because of what's happened at 9-11 that any patriotism has been restored, but I guarantee you it's not going to be for long, sad to say. The abolition of all religion, well, even the Bible verifies that um, it's, it's going to come down to a one world religion, and that makes sense, because since these people are planning to take over, well, they don't want any competition, for goodness sake, they're going to get rid of anyone who would dare oppose them. The the, the importance of the family, and let's abolish it, um, people, that's why um, we have abortion clinics and why they um, are so busy. We have been led into a state of devaluizing human life. By doing that, well, let's face it, (laughs) big deal, who cares about the family? You just get rid of, you know, this new baby, you know, if we want another one, we will. It is disgusting that we have become a throwaway society in that we could so easily devalue life. Because, look at um, the ramblings of Dr. Dr. Jack Kevorkian. Um, oh yeah, great for euthanasia? I think not. I think it's about time. We as family members start taking care of each other, especially the elderly. People, we don't get rid of them. That's not how it was. That's how it never used to be. We used to take care of the elders, you know, our own family members. You know, they stayed with us. We didn't just throw them away or lock them away or put them who knows where. But the family unit is under severe attack, and its divorce rate right now is over 50%. So you can see how successful the Illuminati has been at abolishing the family unit. And of course, the last of their Southern Park plan calls for the creation of a new world order. Well, guess what, ladies and gentlemen, this is a very old declaration as penned by Dr. Adam Weishaupt. Back in the um, 1700s, when he first created the order, order of the Illuminati, he himself called for the, for the Nova Ordo Seclorum, the new world order. And here it is, more than 200 years later, um, one of the first um, people of the modern age, President, President George Bush, stood before Congress and said, we must create a new world order. He was only giving out the marching orders of his masters. Bush was just a puppet who was repeating the age-old proclamation and goal of the Illuminati, and that is to create a new world order. The evidence, as far as I'm concerned, ladies and gentlemen, is overwhelming. We have it, um, the Illuminati stated what their goals and plans were. We find out in the protocols um, what their plans are. We can verify in the Bible that the prophecies are there concerning all these um, events, ladies and gentlemen. It's about time that Christians stand up and stop fighting what is right. And I'm not talking about just go to church on Sundays and stay in your little pews or stay in your little comfort zone. This is a war, for goodness sakes. War is not comfortable. I know because um, an interesting thing happened to me um, when I was putting all these um, presentations together. I was actually hit by a truck. I still can't believe it. I was hit dead on by a truck, God be praised. I was able to walk away with it without a scratch. And I can tell you right now, ladies and gentlemen, there was divine intervention there because I don't know how I didn't go under. On the only way I can think of it is that there were some angels keeping me out of trouble as always. But um, the fact of the matter is, ladies and gentlemen, the Illuminati does have a seven-part plan to take over the world and we see, and we see these things coming about even as um, we're speaking right now. So my question in conclusion is, what are you, the chosen children of God, born again Christians, or Christians, whatever you want to let all